Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In the second half of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is working to apply many of the themes that he's presented in the first, in the first six chapters. He provides us wisdom for some of the thorny issues of, of the fall, and he keeps us out of the proverbial ditch, literally. Song of Solomon provides wisdom for marriage. Proverbs offers general principles for life. Job shows us what to do when life doesn't fit into Proverbs. And Ecclesiastes explains these areas overshadowed by the, by the curse. It's a commentary on Genesis 3 that shows us where wisdom can be found in a, in a fallen world. And after making us deal with the apparent contradictions like a, like a blessed sinner and a tormented saint in verse 15 of chapter 7, Solomon gives us the, the key at the end where we left off. In verse 18 of chapter 7, he says the key is, is the fear of the Lord. That's how he's going to end the book. You must avoid two common missteps when, when facing the crooked parts of, of life. You must not try to manipulate God with religion to overcome them. And you must not swing in the other direction and think that the way you live doesn't matter because consequences will, will come. You can't mock the Lord. So fear Him. That's, fearing Him will, will help you hold on to, to, to the two things that you need, that, that God is in control when things don't make sense and consequences are, are, are certain. So, so you keep his commandments even when rewards are delayed, when, when they come in, in heaven. Well, today, Solomon is going to show us the, the, the twin truth that you must embrace to, to have the wisdom that he's talking about here. In verses 19 through, through 29 that, that Mike read for us, Solomon shows us the fear of the Lord will lead to a frank view of man. And wisdom embraces both parts, a, a high view of God and a low view of, of man, as one of my friends put it. The fear of the Lord is a proper view of God. He is the one who holds time in his, in his grasp. We, we saw that in, in Ecclesiastes 3. He is God and, and we are not. And so we have to, we have to look to him and trust him. We, that will keep us under him when the winds of the curse blows. Now Solomon's going to turn that coin over. The flip side of that is an accurate view of mankind. Man is totally depraved. There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins, Solomon will tell us, and he'll explain that in depth. And both of those realities go together and must be understood or it's going to lead to a stumbling in, in life. The fear of the Lord has a, has a horizontal companion, a biblical view of sin and the, and the sinners who commit it. If you don't look up to, to God when the, then you're going to stumble over questions that you can't answer, like, like a blessed sinner or what to do with injustice, as Solomon's already taught us, or, 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 or death or, or the way that you feel, the futility of life. But, if you don't look down at, at man knowing he is sinful and, and corrupt, then, then you can think that, that he's got the answer or, or that you have the answer. 
or to say it plainly, a proper view of God brings an accurate view of man, and both of those two things go together. They're twins. They're the building blocks of of wisdom and walking wisely in a in a cursed world. They're like sand and cement. Together they make the mortar that you need to hold the bricks of a fallen life together, especially when the wall leans because of the the, the curse. In verses 19 through 29, Solomon provides wisdom that comes from biblical anthropology. You could say it this way. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the depravity of man is the first lesson in becoming wise. In these verses, Solomon gives us five insights from wisdom that comes from biblical anthropology. He says that you can lack wisdom if you discount depravity. That's in verses 19 and and 20. He says that you can miss wisdom if you dwell on others' words. He says that you can confuse wisdom if you delude yourself about its search. That's in verses 23 through 25. He says you can stumble before you gain wisdom if you don't discern evil. And then he says you can have wisdom if you draw a distinct conclusion. And that's how he wraps it all up in verses 27 through 29. Don't discount depravity. Don't dwell on others' words. Don't delude yourself about wisdom's search. Do discern evil and then draw a distinct conclusion and you can have the wisdom of God. Let's look at the first one. If you didn't get those, you'll get another opportunity to write them down. Here they are. Here's number one. Solomon says, the lesson from biblical anthropology, the first lesson is you can lack wisdom if you discount depravity. Look, if you would, at verse 19. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in a in a city. He begins here by following up on this statement in verse 18. The fear of the Lord uh, comes forth from, from both of them. And now he says that wisdom that he's about to give us is better protection than ten rulers of a city. This is contextual. A city was considered blessed in Solomon's day if, he, if it had one capable ruler. But the city that, that Solomon is going to contrast here, he says that it has ten good rulers. And Solomon says the wisdom that comes from the fear of the Lord brings even greater stability than that, than, than ten good politicians, if there is such a thing, right? Well, whatever that is, Solomon says his wisdom is going to be better than that. And he tells us the first key to, to gaining that wisdom is to recognize man's limitations due to his depravity. Look at verse 20. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. The fear of the Lord, in essence, as I said, means to look up for the answers, to, to fear God, to revere Him. It's, it is to look at Him as God. And Solomon says the tail side of that coin is to have a proper view of man. They, they go together. If you understand one rightly, it requires you to draw the, the other conclusion. That's called biblical anthropology. A biblical view of anthropology says man is born inherently sinful, unable to change his condition. 
And Solomon says that understanding this is, is necessary for wisdom because it eliminates the primary place that human beings look for the, for the solutions inside. You don't believe me? Just watch a Disney movie. Believe in yourself. Uh, the greatest potential is you. Or, or go to the local bookstore and pick up a self-help book. Whatever it is. You are the solution. It lies with, within you. And Solomon knows that unless he slams the door shut on human wisdom and human will and human ability and he welds it shut, we will continue to look for human answers when the conundrums of the fall come upon us. And that will never lead you to God's wisdom. And he tells us why in verse 20. Look at it again. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. Solomon covers all of the, all sides of the human condition in that, in that, in that verse. Paul, the apostle Paul must have had Solomon's voice ringing in his ears when he penned Romans 10, uh, 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of mankind, their universal condition. There is not a righteous man on the earth. That's a universal truth. All human beings are depraved. But he also covers omission and commission. You notice that? There is not one who does good. That covers the sin of omission. And there is not a man who never sins. That's that's commission. You may look at your life and, and you say, I don't break the Ten Commandments. I don't steal. I don't, I don't murder. I don't, I don't do a lot of bad things that I see other people do. And Jesus would say to you that the, the sin of commission is not just the act itself. It's, a, it's also the desire that, that births it. That's his whole point in the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you've heard it was said to, to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say unto you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He says if a man is angry in his heart, he's violated God's law because malice toward another is the womb of violence. It gives birth. Anger gives birth to, to violence. Anger is not the same as murder. You hear the nonsense of... Um, you know, this sin is, is equated with this sin. Being addicted to chocolate is this, is on the same level as homosexuality or whatever it is. That, that's nonsense. The Bible doesn't say that. Jesus is not saying anger is the same as murder. Jesus' point is when are you guilty against a holy God? At what point do you commit sin? At what point uh, do you become guilty under the law? And the answer is the moment the rebellion against God's standard rises in your heart. That's when you're guilty, not when you just, not when you act. Of course, acting is worse, but you're guilty with the desire. That's, that's commission. And if you delude yourself to think that, that you meet that bar, then, then Sol- Solomon adds the sin of omission. Not only stepping across the line, but, but to omit what is, what is good. That's what he says here. There's not someone who continually does does good. That covers the sin of omission. You're just as guilty before God when you omit something that is rightfully required as when you commit something that's justly restricted. Now, think about it this way. When you took your math exam or whatever exam, did the teacher only mark your incorrect answers wrong? What did the teacher do with the ones that you left blank? 
those were marked wrong as well, right? God not only tells us what is wrong and commands us to avoid it, He also tells us what is right and commands us to perform it. And when you fail to perform that, you're guilty of the the sin of omission. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And when you don't do that, you're guilty of sin. You omit something that God requires. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. The, the level of importance that you give yourself is the, is the love that you express to your neighbor. And, and when you admit that, you're, you're guilty. You shall honor the Sabbath day and, and keep it holy. You shall have no other gods before me, meaning that God alone will be worshipped. And so when you fail to give Him the worship that He rightly deserves, then that's sin of omission. You're guilty. You fail to do all these things and many more. And Solomon points that out in in this verse. And if you ever doubt your sinfulness is through and through, you can look no farther than your than your tongue. <laughs> the second insight from biblical anthropology is found in verse twenty one. You can miss wisdom if you dwell on others' words. You can miss wisdom if you dwell on others' words. Look at verse twenty one. And also do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Solomon tells us not to be shocked by the sin of another person. And in verse 22, he gives us the reason, because you've done the same thing. You see that? He connects these two verses. Don't, don't be shocked. If you hear somebody speaking evil about you because you've done the, you've done and, and do the same thing. Don't clutch your pearls when you overhear an unkind word about your person. Because if people could listen to all your private conversations, they would have reason to speak evil about you and you wouldn't be able to say anything. That's what Solomon's saying. Solomon's not saying it's okay to curse others or everybody does it so who cares. That's not what he's saying. We just learned that that error in verse 17. Don't be overly wicked. Consequences are certain. He's he's clearly not saying that. Solomon is using our tongues as evidence of what he's just said about mankind's total depravity. You don't think you're depraved, Solomon says? Tell me, can you control your tongue? Can anyone control their tongue? Can you keep from speaking rashly or harmfully about others, whether you overhear it or whether you do it yourself? Can you keep yourself from cursing the the difficult things that come in life? Tell me, what rises in your heart on a regular basis whenever life gets gets too difficult? Is the question that comes, why is life so hard? Does that not not rise up? And and sometimes we even add God to that. God, why? You know, are, are you bringing this in my life? The New Testament makes this exact same argument in the book of James, which is all about wisdom. You remember James? person who believes that they're religious and they do not bridle their tongue deceives themselves. Jesus makes this same connection between the tongue and the, and the heart. He said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's inside is going to, is going to end up coming out. It, it's not what goes in a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man that that, that defiles him. In the Bible, the tongue represents the dipstick of the heart. <laughs> and you want to check your heart for sin? See what your tongue reads. 
Hopefully it's a few courts low. But Solomon says whenever it's not, don't be shocked by that. I think one of the most dramatic examples of this verse I think I've shared with you before. It was a, I had two people that, that worked for me. They, they were coworkers. And one of the ladies used her, used her feminine ways to, to help her as she called on, on physicians as a, like, kind of like a drug rep. And this coworker was, was riding in a, in a car and, um, this was back whenever your cell phones were connected to, to your car. And, uh, he, he called this woman's voicemail to let his wife hear how seductive she sounded in her voicemail. And then they did not get the phone hung up. And so for the next 45 minutes, this lady's voicemail recorded everything that this couple said about this woman. And I didn't hear it, but it was none to too kind. And it was obviously quite a mess whenever we rolled into the office on, on Monday. Solomon says she shouldn't get too bent out of shape about that, as hurtful as that might have been. Solomon says don't become indignant and say, how could they do that? How dare they say that about me when you do the exact same thing? Beyond Solomon's proof for, for his proposition from, for verse 20 about man's sinful state, this verse has a very practical lesson, doesn't it? We often say things behind people's backs that we would never say to their face. And so we shouldn't take it so seriously when we learn someone said something unkind about us. If you took every critical word, if I took every critical word spoken about me to heart, I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I really wouldn't. (laughs) And Solomon says what helps dull that blow is to remember I say things I don't mean. That I say things that aren't very, aren't very thought through. Phil Riken gave three common reasons that we speak ill of others connected to this verse. He says sometimes we speak out of frustration. And whenever we calm down, we understand the, the truth of the situation better. Have you ever spoken rashly out of frustration? Maybe the guy that cut you off on the, on the way to church this morning. You don't know what was going on in that guy's life. Maybe you learned something that would, would change your perspective. Sometimes we speak out of frustration. He says sometimes we speak unkindly without fully understanding the situation. Only to gain more information and see that we were wrong. Have you ever drawn the wrong conclusion about somebody? Spoke evil about them and then, and then you learned you were the one that was wrong? Sometimes he says we just speak critically. And it says more about what's wrong with us than what's wrong with the other person. We're heard about something unrelated and, and it comes out toward the person. And our hearts are hardened and so we just let it fly on an unwitting soul. Whatever our reason, we are guilty of critical speech, are we not? And that's a read on our hearts. Reveals where that comes from. It comes from the heart. Here's a helpful test before you speak. Ask, would I say this if the other person could hear me say it? Ask yourself, have I taken into account information that I I may not know or do not have? And if you clear those two, then add a little Bible. Does what I'm going to say build the other up or tear them down? 
And finally, what do these words say about my own heart? Solomon's moral here is don't dwell on words. Take God's command not to speak evil very seriously. Don't take what others say too seriously. That won't lead to wisdom. It'll simply increase your frustration if you get wrapped up around the axle about the words of others that they speak about you. The overly righteous will hold a grudge over what someone has to say about them behind their backs. The the overly wicked person responds in kind with words of retaliation against those they believe those they believe have defamed them. But the person who is aware of the truth of verse 20, your depravity, your own sinfulness, he'll shrug off, uh, shrug off these foolish and unkind remarks of others. Let me give you number three. Packed, isn't it? You can confuse wisdom if you delude yourself about its, about its search. If you would at verse 23, this is wisdom that comes from a biblical anthropology. He's already told us, fear the Lord, and now he's going to give us a frank view of, uh, of man. Totally sinful, your tongue is the proof of that. And now you can confuse wisdom if you delude yourself about the search, if you think that you're going to catch it. Because the search is lifelong and it ends without success. Look at verse 23, at least in this life. I tested all this with wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation and to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. Have you ever watched a dog chase its tail? (laughs) That's quite entertaining at times, isn't it? Sometimes the dog catches it, and then they don't know what to do with it whenever they do. You ever, you ever notice that? They grab it, and they, they don't know what to do. They have to let it go in order to walk, or they'll just keep walking in circles. And, and then whenever they, they let it go to, to walk straight, then they, they realize they don't have their tail, and so they start chasing it again. Solomon says that's the way wisdom is for us in a fallen world, this side of heaven. We search after wisdom, and we give it our all, and, and sometimes we think we catch it, but... We have to turn loose of it in order to, in order to walk straight because life is coming at us. It's, it's far from us, especially the mysterious part, Solomon says. Solomon is particularly stumped. He goes on this search. He says, I will be wise. He, in verse 23, he says, I will be wise, but alas, it was, it was far from me. And he says there are certain things that are remote and exceedingly mysterious. And he's particularly stumped with two things. Look at verse 25. I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom for an explanation, to know the evil of folly and the foolishness of of madness. Those are two things that that stump Solomon. He tries to figure these things out. They're mysterious. He, He doesn't figure them out. but he gives it the old college try. He said he couldn't comprehend how how it all fit into God's plan. He couldn't comprehend why why God allowed it all. In verse 25, the word explanation means the sum of things. 
he couldn't understand the big picture. He couldn't understand all, how all of these things fit, how, how sin and, and evil uh, uh, fit with, with, with who God is and, and, and trying to reconcile all of that. Solomon says, I, I gave it a, a legitimate pursuit, but, but, it, but I came up short. Solomon dedicated his whole life to wisdom. And the enigmas like God and sin and, and man's character still stumps him. He's, it's just, he's, he, he's never laid hold on the, on the some answer this side of heaven. Solomon plums the, the depths of wisdom and he's stumped by sin and the depths that man will descend into it. You want proof? He clearly didn't grasp it. How can the wisest man who ever lived have a thousand wives and, and go after other gods? Well, here's the answer, Solomon didn't find the wisdom. You're stumped about it too, I would say. Have you ever pondered why a person would choose to go to hell instead of heaven? Doesn't make any sense, does it? Does that make any logical sense? Or why the, the woman throws everything away for a one-night stand? Or why you do some of the same sins that you do over and over knowing that they're, they're wrong before God and yet you find yourself right back at the hog trough again. Does that make any sense? It stumps you, doesn't it? Solomon searched for the answer, but like you, he couldn't fully comprehend. Derek Kidner said verse 23 through 25 is the, is the epitaph of, of every philosopher's tombstone. I searched, but in the end it was far from me. Philosopher after philosopher after philosopher searches for the meaning of life only to end up on the the trash heap of time. Notice the words that Solomon chooses to describe his pursuit. All of these verbs are emphasizing sincere labor. Verse verse 24, he says, I, I, I tested. He says, I directed my mind to, to know in verse 25. I turned my heart to search out or, or seek. We've seen his search, haven't we, in, in the first five chapters. Here's his summary conclusion. Wisdom was far from me, and it wasn't for a lack of effort or, or opportunity. It was because a certain level of it is, is unknowable, this side of heaven. And Solomon, after his quest, in the end admitted he failed to find the wisdom that he sought. And that is wise isn't it, to admit that? Isn't that the key to wisdom? To acknowledge you don't know everything? And even with all your efforts of a well-trained mind, you can only understand a part? That's one of the wisest realizations that you can come to, which is why Solomon tucks this into biblical anthropology. Because when a human being realizes that they know very little and that they can't figure it all out, that is, that leads you to the rest of the fact that there is someone who does, and that's God. How does James contrast heavenly wisdom with earthly wisdom? James 3.17, But the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering. It's without hypocrisy. 
Heavenly wisdom, when it is operating, is pure. It's sincere. It's, it's gentle or submissive. It's, it, it's humble. It's unwavering. It's without hypocrisy. Unwavering without hypocrisy in the conviction that God knows even whenever I don't. The Bible says wisdom is humble. And you're not humbled until you come to realize that you don't know certain things and you can't even with all your efforts. And it's when you get there that you can truly rest. James 3.15 gives us the contrast. Here's the proud human knowledge. This wisdom, he says, is not that which comes down from above. It's earthly. It's natural. It's demonic. That's shocking. Man's wisdom is limited. It comes from the fallen world, James says. Its, its source is rebellion from the great rebel himself, it, and it brings confusion and disorder. James echoes exactly what Solomon says here. And the greatest moment of peace in your life will come when you admit that you don't have all the answers, you can't figure out all of the answers, but, but, but God does have all the answers. One commentator says, knowing the limits of human wisdom is part of wisdom. Or to say it a familiar way, the more we know, the more we realize how little we know. That's wisdom. But you can stumble while pursuing wisdom, even if you realize that, if you're careless. Let's look at number four that Solomon gives us. You can stumble... Before you gain wisdom, if you don't discern evil. Now, this is where this passage gets really interesting. Look at verse 26. And I discovered, more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. The one who is pleasing God will escape from her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Now Solomon begins to tell us what he did find on his search for wisdom under the sun. Look at how the words change. If you look back at verse verse 25, he says, I directed, I investigated, I sought, but, but wisdom was far from me. Now in verse 26, he says, I discovered. Look at verse, uh, look at verse 27. Behold, I have discovered this. In verse, Verse 29, behold, I have found only this. Solomon now tells us that he found three things on his search. Some things he could figure out. And he learned three distinct things. Immoral women are more bitter than death. Very few people are virtuous. And while God created mankind upright, every single one went wrong the three things that Solomon discovered. You can't know everything. You can't figure out how how all the things reconcile and fit together. But what you can know is exactly what Solomon says here. Solomon makes a statement about women in general in the next verse, but, but he speaks about specific women here. Notice he says, the woman whose heart is, is snared. This may not mean anything to all of you, but, but Trimper Longman rejects this approach because of verse 28. He, he says Solomon means all women here. All women are more bitter than death. <laughs> and maybe if you knew Solomon's wives, you'd say the same thing, right? He had some pretty ugly women in his life. Spiritually ugly, that is. 
But if Solomon is talking about all women, it would make no sense for him to give that caveat that, that he does at the end. The one who is pleasing God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. So I mean, it is very clear uh, Solomon has a target. The seductive woman is worse than death. And Solomon is the author of, of Ecclesiastes, and he's spoken much about the, the strange woman or the, the woman of folly in, in Proverbs, hasn't he? Listen to Proverbs 5. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Proverbs 9, verse 13 through 18. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is, she is naive and knows nothing. She sits at her doorway in her house, calling to those who pass by, who are, are making their path straight. And whoever is naive, let, let him turn in there. He who lacks understanding. She says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there and their guests are in the depths of Sheol. Men, let me talk to you first. Solomon says, under the sun, in your walk, seeking wisdom, you may not be able to understand everything, but this one thing you can understand and you should. Solomon says that when you're tempted to take a second glance or tap on the Fox News clickbait for Miley Cyrus or Jennifer Aniston, Solomon's words need to be ringing in your ears, these words. God says if you do that, you're stepping toward the grave. These are not beautiful women that want to bless you with their looks. They're, they're, they're sirens singing a lullaby of death. The woman peacocking in the bikini on the beach is not a stunning image. She's bait for the naive. She's an advertisement for the, for the hotel of the damned, Solomon says. Ladies, heed Solomon's words here. Not the nonsense of today that says you can wear whatever you want because it's your body. It's, it's not your body. It's the Lord's body. And you should adorn it in a way that honors Him. Sin does not wear well on a woman of God. There's nowhere in the Bible that is like at the, at the uh, um, king's dominion, which has a measuring stick, how long your skirt has to be or, or whether you cover your shoulders or otherwise. It's an attitude of the heart. But, but your attitude ought to be, I want to adorn myself in a way that, that pleases the Lord. And if your desire, the desire of your heart is to be noticed and to be longed for, it's your brother's snare and your hands as well as other parts can be chains if you use them lustfully, Solomon says. You're not responsible for another man's hunger, but you are responsible for the commercial that increases his appetite. The first thing that God did when Adam and Eve sensed the guilt of their sin is He covered their nakedness. Nakedness is wrong after the fall because of our depraved natures. Don't uncover what God has concealed. Don't steal the intimacy that God intends to be between you and another person who has access to the unseen parts of you. You can stumble before you gain wisdom. Solomon ends with an admonition. How can you avoid that? Look at what he says at the end of this verse. 
The one who is pleasing to God will escape her, but the, but the sinner will be captured by her. The one who strives after God will escape the traps of this kind of woman and it will keep you from being this kind of woman. But if you're foolish and you don't heed Solomon's words, you'll be captured, killed, and eaten. Let me give you number five. You can have wisdom if you draw a distinct conclusion. You can have wisdom. Maybe not all of it that you'll get in eternity, but enough to navigate this life, which is what Ecclesiastes is all about. View it at verse 27. Here's the distinct conclusion. Behold, I've discovered this, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find an explanation. He's going to add all three of these things together. He's going to draw a final conclusion in verse 29. Here's part two to what he's adding together. Which I am still seeking, but I have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all of these. Now up to this point, Solomon is, has been telling you what will keep you from wisdom. And now he shows you the key to gaining it. And it comes from a distinct conclusion about God and about man. Solomon builds on, on what he just, just discovered. And he adds one thing to another and, and he concludes, the second thing he concludes is virtue is scarce. He makes an unflattering remark about mankind in general and women in particular. And there's all kinds of explanations and cautions about this verse to try to protect Solomon from sounding like a misogynist or a, or a woman hater. One said Solomon is drawing from his own experience with his thousand wives. Another said Solomon is, is, is using this woman as a metaphor, like the woman of folly of Proverbs. Yet another said Solomon is quoting prevailing opinion of his day and, and, and something that he rejects. That he's not found to be true. I don't know how any, how they get that from, from that passage. But all that just interprets the passage with, with what plagues our current culture. And if you just read the text, he says exactly what you read. I have found one man among a thousand, and I have not found a, among, a, a woman among all these. And if that offends you, whether you're a man or a woman, you think too highly of yourself. You're far worse than what Solomon says about you in this verse. Solomon's point is no men or women are consistently wise or virtuous. I mean, that's his point. You take 28 and, and verse 20 and, and you put them together and, and, and you conclude Solomon is not favoring men over women. He, he's not a sexist. He's a realist. Solomon is, is saying they're both bad. I don't find, don't find in either one. He's not saying men are slightly better than women. As he walked through life, he'd come across thousands of people and out of, out of all of those people, he, he found none that had the answer to, to virtue. It's like, it's a figure of speech. It's like saying, uh, uh, one man in a million. And even that one man in a, a million, Solomon's already said he's a brave sinner in verse 20. He found few who pursued wisdom. Rather, this is what he has observed. And here's his conclusion in verse 29. Here's a distinct conclusion. Behold, I found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices or many schemes. 
after personal observation of mankind, a passionate pursuit of wisdom, Solomon brings us to this distinct conclusion. And here's his conclusion. God is not to be blamed for sin, and man is utterly depraved. That's how Solomon summarizes this whole this whole section. God is not to be blamed for sin, and man is utterly depraved. Man is to blame. Solomon says what James says, God is not the author of evil, neither can he tempt any man. That's what he starts with. This is what I found, that God made men upright. See that? And while you may not be able to to, to grasp how God can allow sin and evil to exist, the one error the Bible does not allow you to make is to think that God is responsible for it because He's not. Solomon says that while God is the sovereign of the universe, there's not a man or woman in hell that can blame God. There's not a man in heaven, for that matter, that's not there except by grace alone. It's their sin and willful rebellion, the sin and willful rebellion of men that condemns human beings to judgment. And he tells us exactly how that happens. God made them made them upright, and men have sought out many devices. Solomon says don't fall prey to the error of double predestination. He says rejoice in the election of God unto salvation, but don't think that cuts the other way. God will have mercy on whom he chooses to have mercy, but he does not choose any man for hell. That's what Solomon says here. That blame lies squarely at their own feet. Election is dependent upon divine grace. Reprobation is dependent upon individual and personal sin. And there is no injustice by God to any, Solomon says. And the fact that some will go to hell is not God's fault. The fact that any go to heaven is God's grace. And he tells us exactly why at the end. They, after God made them upright, they have sought out many devices. Solomon says here there's no reason to argue who is wiser, men or women, who is less righteous or more righteous because all people everywhere have gone astray. That's what it means to seek out their own devices, meaning schemes. Verse 29 really should just like leap off the page. If you've been playing, if you've been paying close attention to Solomon, he's already told us that there are things that are crooked that can't be made straight. And he tells us at the end that only God can make straight what is crooked, and he will. And now he tells us that that includes more than just the crooked things of the world. God made mankind upright, but we have bent what God made straight. The fall is God's curse, but he lays the blame at our feet. Solomon even uses the word for Adam here to take us back to the fall. Adam, the federal head of the human race, and everyone who came from him went his own way. My grandfather put together a genealogy before he died uh, of our ancestors and linked us back to to Germany. He gave a a copy to all the, the living family members. Solomon says that was just a branch of a larger tree. And Calvin said the base of the uh, of the poison uh, the base of that tree is the poisoned root of Adam that rots the whole. <laughs> Bill Ryken said depravity is one doctrine of Christian faith that can be proven empirically. 
many inventions, wicked and devious schemes. Isn't that exactly what Isaiah says? All we like sheep have gone astray. And we inherited our sin nature from Adam, but our actions and attitudes are our guilty expressions of it. And you can blame Adam for the mud, but not the the wallow that you enjoy. Adam gave you the dialect to speak, but, but the curses come from your own mouth. And you say, how does that grant me, me wisdom to navigate the curse and reduce my frustrations in a fallen world? Because if you don't understand mankind is hopelessly sinful and that God is eternally good, then you'll never look for the only solution which comes in Him. If you don't have a biblical anthropology knowing where sin and evil come from and that it resides in the heart of man, you're not going to realize God's wisdom in the gospel. You see, the Bible says that one man in a thousand, that one in a million, that one man of, of all, there was a man who, who came who was upright and remained that way, and his name was Jesus Christ. And he accomplished what this first Adam failed to do. He, he never devised schemes. He never went the, went the wrong way. He pleased God perfectly. And where Adam's work brought death, the last Adam's work brought life. And and if you'll turn from your own schemes and repent of your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll save you. He's good. And on the cross, Jesus straightens what you and I bent. He's the upright one. He's the righteous one. He's the the fairest of ten thousands. He's He's the lover of my soul. And it's only when you realize that you made crooked what God made straight, and there's nothing that you can do to straighten it, it's only whenever you realize that you'll be ready for the gospel. Are you ready? Will you turn to Christ today? Chew by your heads. We made crooked what God made straight. And maybe you're here today and life is, is swirling. Maybe it's frustrating. Maybe it's futile. Maybe it's confusing. There are only two things that Solomon says that you need to realize. God is good. He made things straight. You made them crooked. And if you understand those two things, then you can come to Christ and He can straighten the mess out that is your life. Will you say, God, my sin is not your fault or someone else's, it's mine alone? I made my life crooked. Will you then look to Christ and believe upon His work for your hope? If you do, if you will, He'll save you and you'll no longer be accounted among the failure of the first Adam. You'll be credited with the success of the last in this life and in the judgment to come. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and how clear it is. And I pray that even as we close in prayer, that there's anyone here this morning that's outside of Jesus Christ, they've never been forgiven of their sins, that that they would just simply repent and believe and receive all of the forgiveness that you offer so graciously and so mercifully. 
mercifully. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.